At Generations Church, we say we are a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. The family just got a little bit bigger, and we love that. Just, it's so fun to just see families wanting to come up here and say, we want to raise our kids in the Lord. We want them to pursue God. And that's why we exist at Generations Church, for generations to come. For generations to come. Today we're continuing our series through Mark where we're going to be looking at a, a passage of Scripture specifically around Jesus' encounter with different groups of people. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to take a moment to, prayer, to pray as we get into our teaching time. If you don't have a Bible, it'll, the words will be on the screen behind me. But Mark chapter 2 verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. It says this, On the Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking up some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone except the priests. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus then entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Let's pray together. God, you are good. We've sung it. We've said it. We saw your goodness with families standing up here, pledging to raise their young ones to follow you, to model that for them. God, so right now, we just need you to speak to us. God, as the chaos in our world swirls, as things at times seem out of control, as whether we're joyful and overwhelmed with gratitude in this moment, or we feel weary and worn, God, refresh our souls. Speak to us. Thank you for your love and for your grace and through and because of your word that we can, we can just gather and proclaim your name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So one of my favorite games to play with people when they come over to the house is Ticket to Ride. Now you got to understand, when we play board games, it's competitive. It's super serious. Like, we're not just playing to, like, socialize and have a good time. 
Like, we're playing like there's going to be a winner and a loser, and both the winner and the loser are going to hear about it and know it. So, so, it's, so it's serious. It's high intensity. I know some of you are like, okay, that's not me. Like, I'm back. It's cool. It's cool. We, we have some other games that we play with people, which we do socialize. Ticket to Ride is not one of them. This, this is a serious game. The object of the game is to get the most points, like many games. And to get the most points, you stick little trains together over the course of the map of the United States. The more trains you stick together, the more points you get. That's the way the game is played. Now, you get bonus points if you collect, connect certain cities with other cities based on the cards that you were given. Now, here's why that's important. Because in this game, there's two different types of players. The first type of player gets those cards with the different cities on them, and they start at one city and start placing their trains throughout the game to go to the other. One at a time, very linear. Some of you are like that in this room. You know yourself, you're linear. You're like, okay, I'm going to start at one city, and I would go to the other. The other type of player is someone who just plays wherever on the board. They're like, I'm going to get points here, I'm going to get points here, I'm going to get points there, and they just play trains wherever, just trying to simply get points. But what happens inevitably throughout the course of the game, whether you're the first player or the second player, is you get so caught up in your strategy that, you, that you've got this predetermined plan about what you think you're going to do, about what your next move is. And inevitably, you get so caught up in your predetermined plan that you forget the object of the game. And you don't always adjust course accordingly. You don't respond and react well to the other players around you. Most people at some point will go, oh man, someone just played where I was going to play. Or they just did the move that I was hoping to make. But they do that because they're not looking at the board. They're forgetting the object of the game to get the most points. There's no rule that says you've got to go from point A to point B sequentially. Or that you've got to play other places versus not. See, knowing the object of the game is more important than following your predetermined plan. In our story, in the passage we just read, we encounter different groups of people. One of the groups of people have this predetermined plan about what it looks like to connect with God. Another group of people have a different plan, but it's still predetermined about what it means to connect with God. And so in our story, we see Jesus make a statement. He says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And to understand what this controversy is all about in our passage, we need to understand what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a word that literally means to cease or to stop. It's a word associated with work and productivity. There are all kinds of misunderstandings around Sabbath, what it is and what it isn't. And so we're going to look at the response to Jesus in today's passage around the Sabbath. But most importantly, what we hope to glean from this is an encounter with Jesus and how we should rightly, as we encounter Jesus, respond to him. So at the end of this Sabbath encounter... Here's what the result is. Let me get to the end of the story. Let me get, get right to the end. You, you heard me read it. 
It says at the end of the Sabbath encounter with the religious leaders, Mark records this. He said, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians and how they might kill Jesus. So there are two groups of people. Did you catch that? The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That was their response to Jesus on that day. With what was happening, the controversy that was surrounding it, people wanted to get Jesus dead. And so let's look at the groups of people who wanted to kill Jesus over this Sabbath controversy. The Herodians, this first group of people, they were supporters of Herod. He was the nastiest of the corrupt kings who ruled Israel. He represented the Roman occupying power and its political system. So in any country that Romans conquered, they set up rulers. And wherever the Romans went, they brought around the culture of Greece, Greek philosophy, the Greek approach to sex and the body, the Greek approach to truth. So conquered societies like Israel felt assaulted by these immoral relative values that were constantly changing. In these countries, there were cultural resistance movements. And in Israel, that was the Pharisees. They put all their emphasis on living by the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures and putting up big hedges around themselves to prevent contamination by the pagans. So group one, Herodians, bring in all kinds of different culture and values. Group two, Pharisees, Hebrew law. Right, wrong, we're going to build hedges so we don't even get close to right and wrong. The Herodians were moving with the times, while the Pharisees upheld traditional values. The Pharisees believed their society was being overwhelmed with these guys, and they were calling for a return to traditional moral values. The Herodians were looking at the Pharisees and saying, guys, get with the times. Times are changing. You need to get on board and just accept Roman occupying power. Let's just, let's just get on it. The Messiah is not coming. And these two groups had been longtime enemy, enemies of each other. But shockingly in our story today, they agree. They have to get rid of Jesus. Two groups of people, two different kind of belief systems, worldviews, ways of, of living in the world, came to the same conclusion after what happened on that day. We got to get rid of of Jesus. These two groups were not used to cooperating. But what's amazing is that the Pharisees take the lead in doing so. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way of Jesus, what he is trying to do and display in the world is going to be an offense to both religion and irreligion. See, Jesus can't be co-opted by either moralism or relativism. And here's why it's an offense. Both of these groups of people were trying to relate to God by being a certain type of good. See, the traditional values approach is a life of moral conformity. This is what good, if you just, if you just are, are always good, you, you make the right decisions all the time. And here's what's right is it's based on the law. This was the approach taken by the Pharisees, that you must lead a very, very good life. But the challenge is, as, as history is progressively unfolding, 
There are new challenges to old values. And just because it's traditional doesn't make it the most moral. Now, the progressive approach embodied by the Herodians is self-discovery. You decide what is right or wrong for you. However, at every point in history, there is a different set of values according to their belief to live by. But just because it's the newest doesn't make it the most moral. Both of these have that same logic. If I perform, if, if I live up to my standards, if I live up to my standards and I obey, therefore I am accepted. Did you catch that? Regardless of what camp these groups of people were in, they said if we just lived up to our standards, if we were good, then we would be able to relate to God and we would be accepted. Here's the good news of Jesus. You don't have to obey to be accepted. We are accepted through faith in Jesus Christ and his love on the cross for us. And he displays that by getting to know you and loving you and caring for you and say you are worth it no matter your past mistakes. You may feel forgotten, but you are not alone. No matter who you are or where you come from, Jesus wants to be your friend and wants to be with you. And he died on the cross for you. Because he loves you and he cares for you. See, you're already accepted in Jesus. Therefore, you can obey and find freedom and, and, and make good decisions. Not in accordance with any set of traditional rules or values, nor with any set of changing norms. But you're making decisions based on who Jesus is and who he says you are. And he says that you are approved of and loved by him. And that's why we have a baptism Sunday. That's why we have baby dedications. It's to tell the story over, over, and over again that Jesus stepped out of heaven, walked on earth, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve to die, and was raised with victorious to life, lived the life that we were supposed to live, and we have the hope of him coming back. And we get to learn that story over and over again and point to it. And that's what baptism is. We're pointing to that powerful story that we are not what we have done, but we are, done, we are what Jesus has done for us. See, you are not what you do or have done or might even will do. You are who Jesus says you are. And he says you are loved and he proved it to you on the cross. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we don't see that in this story. But what we see in this story is Jesus confronting two groups of people that are trying to live in the, the world their way. And Jesus says, let me show you a different way. See, according to the Bible, both moralism and relativism are ways of being your own savior. Both are hostile to the message of Jesus. You can see the work of God and you can even understand the Bible, but that does not equate to accepting Jesus. See, the work of God in the way of Jesus is an offense to our predetermined script of life. See, that's what both of these are. They're a predetermined script of what we think life is and what life should be. And then we judge every decision we make based on our predetermined script, whether it's based on old timely values or more modern times. Both rely on self to say, I'm good. 
I'm right, and this is how I relate to God. And both groups of people miss the point entirely. They miss the need for a Savior, a Savior that says, let me show you what it's like to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to the groups of people who are watching him with, heart, like with eyes, with scrutiny. And that's what we see in the story. They're watching him with scrutiny. And Mark uses this phrase, this hardness of heart, to describe the disposition of the Pharisees. See, they're unwilling to change their mind. You experience this in conversation periodically yourself, this hardness of heart. You know, it's, it's when someone makes a good point in a conversation, and you're sitting there going, you're actually listening to them, and you're going, man, that was a good point. It hasn't come out of your mouth yet, but you're thinking that in your head. But you either publicly or privately have stated something different. And so instead of being willing to admit that it was a good point, you double down on your public or private stance because you don't want to appear weak and competent. You don't want to lose influence or you have a desire to save face. And we do this because of what we think our identity should be or is supposed to be or, and who we have portrayed ourselves to be is at risk if someone else shows us a different way. So we harden our heart. And that's what's happening in this passage for the Pharisees and the Herodians and those who are looking on with scrutiny. They don't want to appear weak. They don't want to appear incompetent. They are unwilling to be in tune to God in flesh. For the Pharisees, their security and significance were at risk with Jesus when he was on the scene. So instead of hearing Jesus, they hardened their heart. For each and every one of us, what we deem will give us the most security in life, or we deem as what will bring us the most significance, those will be barriers for us to really connect with Jesus. Because for, whether it's security or significance for us, it's, it's tied to our identity. It's who we see ourselves as. See, it's, we, we, we've played this song in our minds over and over and over again. It's, I do, therefore I am, therefore God is. And that's what he is like. And in reverse, when Jesus shows up to the scene, it's really, God is, so God does. Jesus is, so Jesus does, therefore we are, so we do. Do you hear that pathway again? You are not what you have done or what you will do. You are who Jesus says you are. And Jesus has to show that to them. Because for them, in that moment, their religion was a barrier to encountering the living God in flesh, showing them how to human well. And for us, the things that we think will bring us the most security or the most significance will be barriers for what it looks like for us to human well and to follow Jesus well. Because usually this security or significance are predetermined pathways that keep us from following the lead of Jesus. You've got something in your mind right now. Maybe it's how you're supposed to interact with family or the type of job you're supposed to have or how you're supposed to orient your schedule. You've been told a narrative over and over and over again that this is the way life is supposed to be. And in turn, because you've internalized that to such a degree that it's tied with your identity, you actually block what Jesus wants to do in your life. But the cool thing 
is that usually Jesus doesn't allow you to block it for long. He provides a solution to what you're searching for. Because while we put our trust in the things that we seek to find security or significance in, he provides the solution. And it's actually what this whole controversy is over. It's the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath as a structured day. It's the true Sabbath. The place where rest is found for a weary soul. Where freedom is found for the enslaved. Where those who have been grinding to earn their way in this life are finally given status. And told they're either good enough or they've achieved it because of Jesus. See, in the face of self-righteous preoccupation, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. As Richard told us last week, Jesus' authority is unrivaled. And when we understand that He is Lord, that He needs to go unchallenged in our life, and that he is unchallenged because he provides the healing and restoration and the rest that we ultimately seek. We begin to understand what Jesus was trying to do all along. And so when Jesus says, in effect, as Lord of the Sabbath, I can give you rest, we have to ask the question, what does that really mean to find rest in our world today? When we begin to think about a day of rest or a period of rest, our minds are flooded with what are the rules around it and what's the plan? What can I do and what can I not do? So I can either be mad about the rules or use them to my advantage. And in the midst of all this, we miss the point. We want to know what does it actually mean to keep the Sabbath? Give me, Kyle, tell me exactly what to do. And there again, we get caught up in the same pathway. We're asking what we should do rather than who we should be and ultimately who we should be connected to. See, time to connect with Jesus because he is in control. That's what the Sabbath is about, is connecting with Jesus because he is in control. Jesus means that he is the Sabbath. And when Jesus calls you to rest, he is calling you to take time off, physical and mental time off from work on a regular basis. That's not discarded. But there's another level of rest, a deeper level. A different reason to rest is to be so satisfied with your work, so utterly satisfied that you can leave it alone. It means you trust that God's actually in control, that you can put something down. You can put the phone down, you can turn the TV off, you can stop worrying about tomorrow and you can be present with today. That We can actually rest from our work because we're so happy with it, so satisfied because it is finished. And we can ultimately walk away from what we feel like we have to do to accomplish something or to secure comfort. And that's almost inconceivable to us. Most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves to convince God and others and ourselves that we're good people. And that work is never over unless we rest in what Jesus has done. See, it's at the end of creation, the Lord says it is finished and he could rest. On the cross at the end of his great act of love, Jesus said it is finished and we can rest. He has lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. And if you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you. Therefore, you can be satisfied with life. 
Jesus gets angry with the religious leaders because the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken, not keeping a set of rules. And that's why Jesus tells the story about David. And he says, you guys don't even know your own Bibles that well. You've missed the point entirely. It's about connecting to the eternal living God and allowing him to refuel your soul. It's about getting back to the true purpose of life and not settling for short-term wins at the expense of long-term formation. And for many, this is no longer practiced or it's hard to practice. Our weeks run together with chaos and schedules. We had a bunch of little kids up here. Parents, you know it's hard to find rest when you have kids. Whether you're in it now or you're on the other side of kids, you know it's it's not easy. And so you may be wondering, how, how do we find rest? I'm worried about my job. You know, the hours are crazy. Maybe you have to work second shift or in the evening and and you're thinking, you're playing. Kyle, I like the idea of rest. Where does it show up in my week? Where it shows up is not where, is not, it's going to show up by not, by me not telling you this is exactly where it's going to show up. It's going to show up by not with a predetermined plan, for success it will first show up with you being connected to Jesus by me not making a set of rules that you have to live by or me telling you this is the right kind of activity to do or the right kind of inactivity to remove yourself from but ultimately but simply being responsive to Jesus which means maybe some of you today need to take a nap Maybe some of you need to go on a walk. Maybe if you're married, it means have sex. Maybe if you're a guy, tinker in your garage. Maybe for some of you, you need to turn the phone off for 24 hours. Whatever you need to do to refuel your soul and connect with God and allow that connection to bring a little bit more joy, bring a little bit more peace, to remember and to remind yourself you're not in control. God is. For man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. The renowned British minister Dick Lucas once preached a sermon in which she recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you're religious. Great. Religion's a good thing. Where's your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? Where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? Well, where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this, sputters the pagan neighbor? And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. It's a connection with an eternal living God. It says you are not defined by what you do, but by what Jesus has done. Each and every week, we remember that with communion. And so maybe you picked one up on your way in. Maybe, maybe you need to go grab one. We'll give you some time to do that during the course of this next song. But each and every week, we ask you to respond to God's word in one of three ways. The first way is this, through taking communion. 
taking a little piece of bread and taking some juice and remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us. That reminds us of that each and every week. The second way we ask you to respond is through giving generously. We give because Jesus gave. And just to, to give a little announcement, all 600 boo buckets that we had talked about the last several weeks were delivered yesterday. And because of your generosity, over almost 300 families were given a Halloween and let know that they are loved, Amen. that they are thought about. Amen. And it's because of your church, because of us, our generosity as a church, that we're able to be purposeful in our community. Amen. The last way we invite you to respond is maybe you just need some prayer. Maybe you wrote some stuff down today and say, Kyle, I'm not, I don't feel restful. My soul is, is just not in a good place. We would love to be able to pray for you. Maybe write that on your gen card or come find me and I will pray with you. So as the band comes forward, I'm going to go ahead and pray. And over the course of the next song, respond in one of those three ways. The taking of communion, responding through generosity, and or getting some prayer. Let's pray together. God, you are good. We sing these songs, we say these words, God, but sometimes we just try to, to be good, to make it on our own, but ultimately we know it's your goodness that, that shapes and forms us to be the best type of goodness. God, thank you for your love, for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who he is and what he has done for us. Over this course of this next song, God, we just ask that you speak to us, that you guide us, that you direct us. Thank you for your love and for your grace and how you proved it to us in Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Amen. We're going to do this next song, and you might know it, but I'm going to need Jared to help me with this song. Think we got it this time? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. All right, Jared, can you start this for me, please? Give me a little funk there. Yeah. Come on, put your hands together. Here we go, sing. What can wash away my sins? You sing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Here we go. Well, let that just simmer a little bit. Here we go. For my pardon, this I see. My bad. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Say. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Here we go. Well, oh, precious.
Thank you guys so much for being here. This is a fun, exciting morning. Before we uh, move into time of baptism, I want to let you guys know about one event we have going on. Man, I love all the kids around the room this morning. Uh, one event we have going on this month is our Generosity Feeds event. Last year, just like last year, we we're, again, um, partnering with some of our local community partners to uh, pack 10,000 meals for kids in our community. Here in Clark County, four yes, yes, it is cool. Here in Clark County, 41% of families and kids struggle with food insecurity each and every day. And so it's just a cool opportunity where we get to partner with uh, some of our local businesses who have partnered through uh, financial, who are uh, bringing some groups to come volunteer and help us pack 10,000 meals that are going to get dispersed to those families in need. So if you're interested in being a part of that and helping us with that, we would love to connect with you. Go ahead and take your gin card this morning. Make a note on there and say, John, I want to help volunteer at that, whether it's helping us set up, whether it's being a table leader or helping fill some of those meals. Make a note on that gin card. And as you guys are going out this morning, we have a response bucket up front. Be sure to drop that in there. And if you're watching online, make a note of that of our online gin card. Again, I want to thank you so much for being here. We're going to say bye to our online audience. Have a 